There's innovation and then there's a successful product slash business. You can have an innovative product and it can be a business or commercial failure. Tony, did you really invent the iPod and the iPhone? <laughs> I mean, that's two big ones there. Look, all of these things are team-based things, but I, I know that when I was a consultant at Apple, it was just me, and I created the iPod with the bits and the baubles that I had then, and then we, I hired a team and brought in you know, to finish it up. And as far as the iPhone goes, that was a, a, a big team of lots of people, and I was one of the major contributors to that. Um, but did I invent it solely? No. Is the iPod solely mine? No. But I was the... I started it. <laughs> Let's put it that way. I mean, are there many things that are solely invented by one person, or is it usually a team? Obviously, it's always a team. Yeah, it's always a team um, because it's not just about inventing new things. You can invent things, but at the end of the day, it also has to go to market and it has to sell. And there's lots of people that are involved, and there's lots of ideas around that. So you always have to consider the greater set of people that are in it. You know, when one person tries to take credit for a whole team's worth of work, I don't think that's very fair. And I think that's really, um, says a lot about the person if they, if they can't give credit to other people who are part of it. Mm. And why were you brought in as a consultant by Apple to work on the iPod? Um, well, I don't know for them exactly, but I think they were seeing if there was something interesting to be done and to have someone who knew handheld products um, that was outside of Apple because Apple wasn't making handhelds any longer. So um, I was brought in because I knew and I had built lots of handholds in my, you know, and shipped them in my past. And I was working on digital music players at my startup before consulting at Apple. So I think that's the reason why. Mm. <laughs> and so maybe if I didn't come up with a good designer, there's no really smart thing that was going to happen with the iPod. They could just go, okay, we don't, the consultant's gone now, and that was a nice try, and we'll move on. Mm. So maybe that was also played into it. I don't know. I didn't, you know. <laughs> All I know is what happened. I don't know what was leading up to that, that point. Mm. Um, why do you think the iPod was such an amazing product and did so well? Uh, because everyone loves music, or mostly everyone loves music, and and before we had streaming services, everybody wanted most of their music or all their music with them at any given time. You know, the iPod allowed you to take a hundred CDs worth of music with you in a pocket-sized device, right? Um, whereas if you had a CD player or a cassette player or what have you, you have a whole load of media plus the player. So that wasn't as convenient. And for me, you know, I was a DJ back in the 90s and 80s, and I had to lug CDs around all the time. And mm. so uh, those were not light, you know, um, whether it was 100 or 1,000. Um, and so I think that people love music, and they wanted, at that time, because they couldn't get it all, it was very convenient to bring it all with them, right, in a very convenient way. Um, and it was fun. It was fun to use. Um, so I think all of those things combined together became, you know, became the sensation plus all the touch points and the media and you know and all the other things but you know iPod wasn't just the iPod iPod was because of iTunes as well the two most people you know forget that iTunes was a big part of it and you know there were other hardware players at the time but it was the combination of doing a great device design and all the software and everything that was on it as well as having owning 
the software that was on the other side of the equation, which was getting music on and off of it, um, you need to have that full holistic design to, to make it sing and make it work the way it did. So all the pieces work together in a special way. We'll come back to that in a moment. I wonder if there's another element that made the iPod wildly successful. Because to me, there's two pieces of marketing that stand out in the last 50 years as being the most genius for me. I th the first one is, if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. Yes. I think <laughs> that may have just got OJ Simpson. Um, I can't say whether he was guilty, but for me, that was a stroke of genius. <laughs> yeah, right. And the other one, 10,000 songs in your pocket. 1,000 songs in your pocket. 1,000 songs it, in your it pocket. It became 10,000, yeah. but it was 1,000 at the beginning. Is that not one of the greatest strokes of marketing genius ever? Uh, it encapsulates so much in so few words that I use it as a guiding, guiding, you know, a guiding line for all the other products that we work with or the companies we work with and going, hey, this is the best tagline ever. Mm. It tells you, shows you the pain, shows you the joy, everything all within a few words. And uh, I always try to get back to that with any of the other kinds of taglines that we do for other companies. Mm. So who originally came up with a thousand songs in your pocket? Well, I, you know, we were always batting around, well, what was the song size? What were, and so we would say, oh, we think with these, this type of library, it's going to be 900 songs. And this type of library will be 1,400 songs, because if they were short Beatles tunes, right, you could put a lot more. Mm. And so we had this range of different library sizes. And it's, you know, and, and now, you know, knowing how Steve likes to market things, you know, make it really easy round numbers. Mm. Uh, it could have been, you know, on average, it's 1,214 <laughs> songs, you know, like, yeah, who cares? Just yeah. a thousand songs. And so he always loved to, you know, take it to the very easiest way to understand. So I don't, I didn't come up with that line, but I, we came up with all the calculations for how much we could store on it. Mm. And then uh, they ran with it and simplified it. So. Was it a memorable event for you meeting Steve Jobs for the first time? It was because I was uh, 22 years old, and so I met him at uh, Andy Hertzfeld's birthday party. I forget, I think it may have been his 40th birthday party, something like that. Um, and I got to meet him there uh, with a bunch of general ma magicians and everything. And uh, Steve rolled up on his bike, and you know, in Palo Alto, and I got to say a few words to him. And little did I know, 10 years later, uh, eight years later. Mm -hmm. You know, I would be pitching him the iPod concept. Mm. And what was your first impression of Steve Jobs? I had lots of stories from the time I was with the General Magician crew. That crew, especially the founders of General Magic, were on the original Mac team. So they would tell us lots of stories about what happened on the Mac team and Steve and, and all kinds of interesting moments in the, in the gestation of, of, of the Mac. And um, so I had one image, um, but in that first meeting, because really the first meeting I had with him was the pitch of the iPod. Um, and uh, it was very different than the vision I had of, of Steve from those stories. Um, it was a great meeting. Um, you know, uh, he was definitely, uh, he knew what he wanted and, uh, and he was not wishy-washy at all which was great. 
Um, and uh, literally at the end of the meeting was like, okay, we're doing this and you're going to be the guy to do it for us. And that was how it went down. Um, so I, you know, I like, uh, I've been in too many big companies and seeing too many indecisive leaders to go, oh, this is different. Um, you know, typically you'll pitch for six months and who knows where it's going. I didn't even think that, you know, I was going to enjoy an Apple because I figured it was just a consulting job to get money for my startup that I was working on. And I was like, oh yeah, I've been through these pitches before and I've seen, you know, uh, indecision uh, or lack of confidence. And, uh, but that wasn't the case. So you said you had one image, you'd been painted a picture of what Steve Jobs was like before you met him. What was that image? That image was, you know, um, a very mercurial person. You didn't know whether he was going to be up or down. You didn't know what he was going to take offense to um, or be interested in. But that's not what I saw. So it was more of like, okay, you just didn't know what to predict. Was it going to be a good day, a bad day, what have you? And so maybe it was, I got it, the stars aligned and that was the right day and the right time and the right, the right presentation, all that stuff. But you know, um, you know that that image that I had didn't just get dissolved at that first meeting, first real business meeting, but you know that continued that way for the you know for for years to you know during our relationship and the time I was working with him. Is it true you tried to leave Apple a few times? Yeah, I wrote in the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I know that I knew the answer to the question, but yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. When it's, something's not right, um, and I've tried every single way of trying to make it right, at some point I'm not going to sit here and, and uh, be upset every day to come into work doing things I don't believe in. Mm. And so I've, you know, in, in different stages of the, of, the, of the relationship, certain things didn't work for me, and some people weren't hearing. And, you know, they listened very quickly when I said, here's my badge, I'm out. Yeah. You know, and, and, but that's what it took for certain really big decisions. And, and for the most part, those times when I was leaving was all about doing the right thing for the company and for the customer. And that's what matters the most. Mm. And what were those trigger things that made you want to leave? Um, well, in one instance, uh, I was not going to allow Intel to be in the iPhone and the iPad. I was like, there's no way we're going to allow Intel here. And I was, the whole more or less the whole company was against me. When you say Intel, how do you mean by that? Intel processors. Right. Yeah. So in, instead of using, because the Intel processors were in the Mac, um, and it, Apple had made a success, successful transition from PowerPC, IBM, and Motorola to Intel, with Intel, um, during the mid-2000s, that Intel was like, I want more business. Okay, we're going to come and do all the magic we did for the Mac. We're going to do that for the iPhone and the iPad. And I said, I'm not doing it. Every Steve wanted to do it. And I said, I'm not doing it. And mm -hmm. I, I fought fiercely. And then at, some, at one point, I put my badge on the table, handed it to Steve. I said, this isn't going to work. And he said, whoa. And now today we have Macs with M1s in it that are all based on Apple's, you know, Apple's, um, Apple's hardware team, silicon team. Uh, you know, using all the technology from ARM and what have you. And uh, that's why, you know, all the silicons inside of the, you know, the head, the AirPods and Apple Watches and iPads and 
and iPhones. It started with, uh, you know, and, and it started with all the custom silicon we were doing all the way from the iPod. And so, you know, that was one of those special moments. And, you know, now I happily use my M1 Mac MacBook Pro. And uh, it was always a vision and it was always a dream in 2008 uh, when um, Bob Mansfield and I um, and Steve went and bought PA Semi that turned into, you know, the team, the base of the team that became the Apple, Apple Silicon team for, mm. for the iPad and iPhone and stuff like that. So yeah, that was one of those very key decisions um, for me. And, uh, and I put my, I guess my employment where my mouth was. Mm. And why didn't you want the Intel in the iPhone? Because Intel at that time, now Intel's changed over the last kind of year, year and a half, two years. Um, Intel didn't have the low power technology. They didn't have the culture. They didn't have uh, the culture of innovating. They had the, we tell you what it is you are going to buy from us. Thank right. you very much. Yeah. Take this or leave it. We're Intel. I'm like, that's not how it works. We're going to tell you what we want. Mm. And we're going to work together to make the best outcome of that. And they didn't even have the base transistor technology necessary for low power and high speed. So they had none of the fundamentals necessary. And that's how I was able to win at the end of the day was um, they couldn't deliver the fundamentals. Even if they had all, even if the salespeople were saying all the right things and so were the CEO, that we were going to have an inferior product. Um, and that's what won at the end of the day, right? Mm. So it wasn't just my opinion. It was based on real hard data. Mm. And I just had to make, make sure everybody woke up to that hard data. Mm. So, um, yeah, take us on the journey of leaving Apple and moving into your own career. Um, for me, Apple was really, uh, was formative for me from a, you know, a customer journey perspective. At General Magic, I was able to, you know, learn about how to create products. Not necessarily products people wanted, but I learned how the, the, the process of design and engineering and those kinds of things from a professional level, from people who've done it before. Um, and then at Apple, it was really learning through Steve's eyes the customer journey, which isn't just about a, making a great product, but that's about you know, having Apple retail and Apple marketing and Apple customer support and genius bars and how to work with retailers, all that stuff. So I got to see that whole, you know, that whole customer journey. Um, and that was wonderful. Um, and so when I was thinking about my next thing, um, I was retired. And so I was just kind of trying to be retired and it wasn't working very well. And how old were you then? I was 40. 39 or 40. Because that's quite young. 39 or 40. Yeah, it was 39 or 40. And um, um, that was uh, to kind of get outside of Silicon Valley, and which I had been in for 20 years at that point, or you know, 18 years, something like that. I needed to get out. And so um, my wife, who also worked for Steve, we took our two young ones, and we went on a year and a half journey around the world. And just learning about different problems in different places, different cultures, you know, and just having a great time. And through that, I saw all kinds of problems. And because we were renting different apartments or villas or what have you, they all had the same problems with their light switches and their heating and cooling and their security and all this stuff. I was like, wow, nobody has fixed this. And at the same time, I was designing a house in Lake Tahoe to be a, one of the greenest, most connected houses for the time. And I had been very frustrated with all the 
for all of the same things that it were, I was going around the world with, but specifically the thermostat. And so I had been working for years trying to jury rig a thermostat that I could save energy with as well as be comfortable. And I wasn't able to do that. And so, so when it came time and I saw everybody in the world having these same problems, no one was innovating. I couldn't find any new products for this new home um, that would allow me to do it. I just sat down and I started designing my own. And that became the Nest uh, Learning Thermostat, mm. which then we know where, where that went from there. But it was really born out of the pain of, of you know, why should I have to choose comfort over waste and uh, wasting money or wasting the Earth's resources? So for me, that was really a big, a big deal. And uh, so just started penning it up and then looking at all the details and understanding it wasn't just about the product. It was about the customer journey. Customers didn't have any choice for thermostats. They were given or they were purchased. They purchased whatever they were told to purchase by the home contractors. Um, they were mostly, almost all of them were ugly. They were hard to use. Um, and they didn't help save energy. Um, so I was like, wait a second. So we have a problem with the product. We have a problem with how that there's a lack of customer choice. There's a... There's only one place to really buy them and, and only one person type of person to install them. I was like, and the reason why there's no innovation is because there's no competition. I was like, wait a second. This is, and, and the competitors that are there are really old, like really, really old. So I was like, wait, this is ripe for disruption up, up and down the chain. And so I was like, okay, how are we innovating on the product? How are we innovating on the, on the installation? How are we in, innovating on the customer choice? all of those things and that's what became what what became the nest learning thermos then then after that multiple products that were born off of that and did you find it a new challenge now you know running your own companies i had run my own startups before right um in fact because of the success that i had through apple um as well as the ideas i had before apple um, that were rejected resoundingly uh, because of the internet crisis of 2000. Um, but then the investors want to come back to me in 2002 and three to fund those ideas. I was like, I had learned, earned a lot of credibility. And so when I said I wanted to do something, people were just, I didn't have to tell them. I, they would just write checks. So the issue for, for Nest wasn't the ability to get marshal the resources. That came relatively easily. The issue was really about innovating and how do you give customer choice when there are no retailers for thermostats, real retailers. Um, how people can self-install them instead of having to go through a, a contractor or a professional to do that. All of those things were, um, how can I say, uh, where we needed to innovate. And that's where the, where the, the, rub, the rub was and where I spent a lot of time. And so luckily we were able to get the resources and brilliant people for the team. Um, but focusing on the customer journey, that's what was the hard part of Nest. And doing it with you know, a small team. And, and we had resources, but they were still limited. It wasn't mm. like a, it was like a huge iPhone team or something. Mm. And is innovation difficult and complicated or is it merely solving a problem someone else hasn't? Well, there's there's innovation and then there's a successful product slash business. And so 
you can have an innovative product and it can be a business or commercial failure. And I had that happen to me in, in the latter part of the 1990s. So you have to have, all the stars have to be aligned for that. So you have to have some kind of differentiation. It doesn't necessarily, you could have a service. It doesn't have to be a atoms-based product or something, but you could have a service, but you have to know why does this exist? What's the pain you're killing? Why should I be even buying it or considering it? You need all of those things to be worked out. And it's not about just selling innovation for innovation's sake or technology. That's what you see most companies do. They say, oh, here's a, a faster speed, more memory, whatever it is. Sell it based on numbers. That's not how you bring a revolution to market. The way you do it is by finding the pain and then bringing a painkiller, hopefully a superpower, and then surrounding it with the right customer journey. And then you can have a product and hopefully business and commercial success. If you just come with the innovation and just say, I have an innovation, it might not even be a good product, right? So you have to, that's what I learned because we had innovation at General Magic. Um, you have to be innovating for the right reasons. So Tony, you've written a book. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and what drove you to write a book and why now? And um, what message did you want to get across in your book? So the reason for the book, uh, it's something I, people have been nudging me on and complaining to me like, come on, you need to write a book. Come on, move, move. And that's been over the last 15 years. Um, so I never, didn't, I, I never wanted an autobiography, a tell-all, a memoir, um, or a how-to guide. Um, didn't want any of that. So I just kept thinking about it. Nothing felt right. Nothing felt right. As I, I even wrote some stuff down, you know, 12, 13 years ago, and it didn't feel right. So I kept looking at it. Three years ago, I woke up and, I don't know, was in a special moment. I was like, wow, how did I get here? You know, there was a lot of hard work and some great ideas and things of that nature. But there was not just all that. There were people along the route starting with my grandfather from the earliest age who saw something in me, some, something in the ideas or my passion or whatever it was, and helped to guide me or steer me or help me at those, those crucial moments, those pivotal moments, to see something that I might have not seen or didn't understand. And I thought about those people and those mentors, and most of those mentors had died. And I was like, oh, that's what I need to do. I need to create an encyclopedia of mentorship, taking all the things that I've learned with my mentors, building on top of that, all the failures and how I learned through those failures and giving that back because these are the same questions that I get asked every day because we at Future Shape, which is our investment advisory firm, we call ourselves mentors with money. Each day we speak to, we have over 200 investments around the world and we speak to these CEOs and entrepreneurs um, and they ask me all the same questions. How do you build a team? How do you hire? How do you do these things? And I was like, I get these questions every day. I'm like, I need to write it just so I don't have to tell the same stories because I'm sick of hearing myself all the time. So I'm going to write it for these people and maybe it'll go wider. And, and it's also not just for the entrepreneurs, but I was writing it and and in a format that if I was 20, 21, 22 again, what would I want to read? What would I want to know? And mm -hmm. so that's really where, it, where it, it starts out, which is something that's 
immediately approachable, something that has micro chapters because it's an encyclopedia, so it's short, short entries, and something that you can bounce around in. You don't have to read it like a linear book. It's really dive in and out. And so that was really the reason, was to honor my mentors and to give back. And um, with Build, you know, any proceeds that I might see are going to be matched by me five times and go into a climate crisis fund to fund, fund companies. So this is all about honoring my mentors and giving back and helping both, you know, the people who read it, hopefully, as well as the climate crisis uh, we're in and trying to help us get out of it in some way, whatever part I can play and my team can play in that. So what's the title of the book? The title of the book is Build, An Unorthodox Guide to Making Things Worth Making. And then if we want to support your work for climate change, is there anywhere we can go for that? You can go to the website and learn about it, but you just buy the book. Yeah. Just buy the book and that's what you'll, 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 you'll be contributing through that, through that, those means. So um, like you, I'm also passionate about having mentors. Because um, before I, I don't like the word success, but before I started to get better results in my life, I tried to do everything on my own. Right. And often you're taught in the world of small startup business, well, you know, you can never get the staff, you might as well do it yourself. If you want something done properly, do it yourself. Um, I guess as someone who's learned from mentors, you disagree with that. If you're going to do anything big, and big can still be small, <laughs> but everything big starts small. But if you have an intention to somehow grow with that idea or with that innovation or whatever, you need others. You can't do it yourself. Even a book, the book that, you know, build required a team, requires a team, still requires a team. It's not... Anything worth making, and in the book it says it very clearly, you need other people around you and you need to be able to understand how to hire properly and, and get people on the team who are focused on the mission and making sure you have a mission, all of these things. So um, there's no, I, even the best artists in the world today, even Banksy, let's take Banksy, he's got a whole team of people. Yeah. They don't talk about him or her or whoever Banksy is, but there's a whole team behind that. That, that, that person helping that, that thing to exist. So to think that you can do something without others, that's pretty egocentric. <laughs> you need to figure out how to work best with people and find what you're good, good at and what you're not good at and hire and, and find partners who can complement you mm. and that you can work together and push each other. And uh, you know, I love, I love uh, startups that have co-founders not just single founders, because then they're really partnership that one day one partner's down, the other one's up and can pull, lift the other one up and, or could see things differently. I think it's really important that you do things with people because at the end of the day, if you're making anything, you're making it for people. And to have more perspectives, trusted perspectives around the table as you're making something, the better, as opposed to just you and your sole focus, right? Even musicians have mm. producers and all kinds of other people around them. Mm. right to help get their their music out, out the door so for people who are sold on the concept of having a team but scared about being responsible for staff the overhead the wages what would you say to them you got to invest money to make money and yes you might fail but you're not going to learn and you're never going to understand how to make a larger business you're going to end up exhausting yourself because there are so many hats to wear even in the smallest business that you can't do it all. 
and you'll find out that you know uh, you're going to run into natural limitations. And if you're not working, there's no money coming in, right? So I think you need to reassess your priorities. And if you're not good at risk, then go work for somebody and learn how to do it or just be, you know, be a part of a, a larger business. That's fine. But you got to take risks. If you don't take risks, there's no reward. If you don't take risks, you're not going to learn about yourself and your capabilities and what you need from teams and, and other people. But you have to, you have to um, disrupt yourself mm. and be uncomfortable. Because if, if you're not uncomfortable most days, and I'm not saying ruminating and overly worrying, but if you're not uncomfortable, you're not trying really hard. You're mm. not trying almost probably at all or you're not paying attention. Mm. And to be able to make something that changes the world or at least changes part of the world or changes your neighborhood or something, you're going to take risks because you're going against conventional wisdom and there are no guidebooks for it. Mm. And to think you're going to be able to take put one foot in front of the other and it's going to just amount to success when you're doing something new and different, it doesn't exist. Mm. So you got to take the risks. Mm. And if you're not cut out for that, okay. Um, but some people are, um, but they need partners and they need mentors to help them. They do, just can't do it alone because it does get scary and you can drive yourself crazy if you don't aren't surrounded with really good people around you to help balance your downs with ups. Mm. So I think, and I might have missed some, but I think you and your products have been awarded in Time Magazine four times, is it? Three times. Three times. Three times. And um, maybe, maybe a fourth is filled, but <laughs> yeah. three. So I'm three for three. We predicted three the fourth here. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you do things for awards? How did it feel to get awarded by Time Magazine? Because that's a big thing. Yeah, it was, well, w one is just to be on the list at all, because it was the, the 50 greatest gadgets of all time, right? I don't like the term gadgets, but that, that's what they like. But, you know, to have all three of them show up when they first published this list, which was, I think it was 2013 or 14, something like that. And to have three of them out of 50, I'm like, that's 6%. That's, you know, for all time, a lot of those things are, you know, created in the 1880s or 1920s or something, right? Mm. You know, along the road. So it's, you know, you got to pat yourself on the back, but I can't celebrate too much. I always look forward. So um, it's nice to be... Nice that there's recognition for them, but at the end of the day, I'm always looking forward, you know, and, 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 and I don't. The book was one chance to look back and kind of put a bow around it. Now it's all just, let's go forward. Mm. How do you have good ideas? Start with pain. Start with either your pain or someone else's pain. What pain are they, do they have? You don't want wish pain on a daily basis to people, but some pains are a daily basis, right? And so you have to, you know, if people are experiencing them all the time, they usually habituate it away and say, that's just the way the world works. And they just kind of go on living that way, right? Because there's no other better way. Um, but if you can tap into that pain and you can provide a painkiller, even better, a superpower, then you're starting to get along those right lines, right? And so as we talked about at the iPod, that was, you know, you could, didn't have to lug around all that media with you and you could have your songs with you at all times. You know, uh, the, the Nest thermostat, being comfortable and saving money, right, um, in a beautiful package. All of those things are, a, a, it's a story, a, a non-fictional story, true story, that combines pain, solution, experience, 
all in one thing. And if you can deliver on that story and over deliver on that story, that's when you get customer delight and people will then get up and shout from the highest mountaintops, you got to buy this thing or you got to try this thing. It's amazing, right? Um, you know, I saw that with the iPod, you know, with Nest and the thermostat, they were given as Christmas gifts under the tree, wow. like thermostats as Christmas <laughs> gifts. I, I, and it wasn't just one, there were many. And so I was like, so that just tells you you've done the right thing. But it all starts with solving a pain for someone and hopefully a much wider audience than just yourself or, or a few people, but it's a wide audience. And, uh, and when you see it and when people see it and they go, duh, of course, you know, then they go, oh yeah, that's what I've been wanting, but they never knew that they wanted it. But they're like, yes, that solves my problem. That's when you know you're on the right track. It feels good. Yeah. Tony, some people though might look at you and think you basically designed the iPod. Of course you're creative, but some people might not feel they're yeah, naturally sure, sure. creative. Right. So what would you say to them to get creative? Well, you know, people do have natural talents. There are people who have talents. Let's, let's be clear. But not, but you can have a designer's eye. You could have, you can be more discerning. It's just working a muscle. Just like if you want to go to the gym and you want to get, you know, whatever, lift stronger weights, you have to work up to it. But you have to do it on a regular basis and really learn the techniques and the skills and what have you. Um, you may not be the ultimate master at it, but you can get good enough that you can really understand this from that and what these things mean and what have you. You might not be able to generate it, but you could actually discern, right? And so for anybody who thinks that they can't do these things, they may not be the world-class designer or world-class engineer or whatever, but they can learn about it. Because why? The people who do this stuff are humans. We're made of the same flesh and bones and all that stuff, just like everyone else. You can learn it. You just have to choose to learn it and understand that you're going to be vulnerable and you're going to be insecure and you're going to try things and you're going to fail. And, and one day you're going to be able to be somewhat proficient at it. You know, I've tried to play piano for years. I know piano. I know the techniques of it. I'm not a world-class pianist. Um, maybe because I gave up. Maybe I could have been. <laughs> but, but my point is that was not where I chose to continue to invest my effort. I chose this route and I had to learn many things along the way. It wasn't, I learned them in school. I didn't, I maybe learned some of these things from my mentors. I learned them from the network of people around it, from doing and failing, and then understanding what it is, and you know, having to eventually write a book to understand how it was I learned through failure. Um, but yeah, no, I think that uh, many of these skills can be learned. You're, it's not like, uh, you know, it's, it's only for some elite that come from certain elite universities and you know they, they thumb your, their nose at you and go, huh, you're not like us. <laughs> do you have like a creative process or routine or a couple of things you do in your um, day that get you open-minded? Um, well, I wouldn't say it's, a, it's, it's become part of me. And what that is, that is that discerning eye, which is I look at something and go, why is that the way that is? Who designed that? Why would they do that? And in some cases, I'm ecstatic and go, that's genius. In other cases, you're like, who? What? This makes no sense to me, mm. right? And then you try to 
from my point of view, and then tear it apart. Why did they make those decisions? What were the trade-offs they had? And sometimes it goes back to they didn't have the right resources. They didn't have the right whatever it was. Or maybe it was the technology wasn't right at that time. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's really about kind of deconstructing the world and being more discerning and just looking at things from a beginner's point of view, right? So um, staying beginner is a big thing. Um, you know, I have a TED Talk. That I used to um, that I used to bring up, which was, um, you know, on fruit there are stickers, you know. But when I grew up, there were no stickers. You just got fruit, and now you have these stickers. You're why the hell is the sticker there? I have to take it off each piece of fruit. I might eat it, whatever. Like why? And it's it's waste. Like it was put there to make it better for the grocery store, but not better for the end customer mm. or for the planet. I'm like, this is brain dead. Why do we do this? But everybody just goes about doing it and they habituate like, that's the way it is. It's like, no, let's go fix that problem. So it's, it's those kind of little things every day that you just have to tap into and go, why? Why? Why do we all go through this nightmare? Um, and so it's, it's that having that beginner's eye that, you know, like when you're a kid, you look at things very differently then after you've kind of understand it and go, oh, that's just the way it is and that's the way it always is. You have to go back to first principles and, and look at it with a fresh eye. So one more question, then if, you, if you're up for it, we'll do a quick fire round okay, let's to do finish it. off. Um, but before that, um, I didn't know we were going to talk about this, but you're clearly really passionate about the climate change and I think we should give that some space. So why are you passionate about that? What triggered your desire to do all the work to try and change that? Well, for me, the, you know, climate change has been, I, well, there's climate change and then there's waste and nature. So when I grew up, I grew up with my grandfather um, and he was born in the Depression era and he learned that anything is valuable, everything. He saved everything, every screw, nut, bolt, spring, piece of wire. It was all in this Depression era garage. It was all in there. And that's where I got to learn and tinker and build with him and, and learn about tools and stuff like that. So he abhorred waste. He couldn't stand waste, so he kept everything. Um, and that just became ingrained in me of like, you shouldn't waste. The second thing was he also had a love of nature. And so we would go out gardening or pruning the trees or cutting the grass or doing whatever. And then he would teach me about different different things or and my brother too about different stuff so i was always had the affinity of no waste and treat nature properly with respect and so in the 80s i started recycling you know before anybody knew what that was i would in the 80s i also do a science fair project which was the feasibility of solar in metropolitan detroit so that was both passive and active solar solar panels all that stuff and this was in 1981 or two something like that. So this has always been in my background and something that I've always been passionate about. And then really around 2006, seven, eight, when I had my first child, right? And we really started to hear about the climate crisis and um, the inconvenient truth by Al Gore came out. And I was like, oh my God, this is like, and green tech was just starting and things like that, green tech 1.0. So then I, that's when I got bit by the bug for the thermostat because of the energy consumption and the energy waste and the, the, the amount of money wasted as well. 
And I was like, what can I do that I know bring all these skills, talents, network to that? And that's just been a, it's just been an ongoing thing from, from childhood all the way through Nest and now into today, which is we support many and invest in many climate crisis focused businesses um, for alternative materials like leather or alternative foods or different ways of doing energy storage or energy generation or uh, more efficient motors. All these different things are things that we invest in because we believe they're disruptive technologies. And when you have disruptive technologies, you can unseat the incumbents, the big, fat, dumb, slow incumbents, just like we did with Nest and the thermostat. You can do the same thing in many of these other domains, especially now that it's finally becoming front and center that we have to take care of this. I've been doing this since you know, 2011, to, you know, and investing in 2014, 15. And it was crickets. People were like, why are you, the green tech thing was over. It was dead in 20, 2009, 2010. And I'm like, no, we all live here together. All these problems are not going to go away. We might not have created them, but we're going to have to solve them. And the only way they're going to solve them is reversing all the things humans did, you know, in the, in the, in the earliest days. So we have to, we all have to band together. And if we don't, well, what's the future going to look like, right? Uh, you know, we're already starting to see that. And that's not just from the climate change perspective, but when we tie ourselves to tyrants and we get our energy and they can use it as a weapon against us and our civilization and how we live, it shows us the imperative uh, nature of what we need to do for, for humanity on this planet. The planet will be here long after we're gone. But if we want to be around and we want our children and our children's generation to be around, we're going to have to do something. We have to do it now. And we all have to either be part, we're either all part of the problem or we're part of the solution. And if you're indifferent or apathetic, you're part of the problem. Everyone should be part of the solution, both professionally and personally. What are they doing at home and what are they doing at work? What if they might not be in a climate change related business, but that whatever they're doing, they can do a better job at it, right? They can figure out what, where the climate is. If you look at the back of the book, in the very last page of the book, it's a sustainability information. It's a nutritional guide for everything that went into the book, where it came from, how it was processed. And at the end of life of the book, if you want to, besides giving it away, what you do with it. Can you compost it? Can you recycle it? What have you? And that's literally, I think, the products and the things we consume need to start having these nutritional labels and the sustainability information. So just like when we buy food, we know what we're eating, more or less. We should know what, you know, conflict minerals or in, in, inside the products. If we tore out a mountain or something, we should know what is in it so we can make better decisions because when we bring transparency, we, make, we bring change. So if people wanted to support a bit more, could they buy like multiples of your books? If, oh, absolutely. Yeah, they can yeah. buy multiples of books. That would be great. Um, Is it also on Audible? Did you do an audio version? There's audio version, there's ebook version, and there's, there's the printed version. Um, and, uh, many, and many languages to come as well in, in all three formats. So um, we're just getting started. It's the first month. We just ended the first month and we are on six or seven bestseller lists now as wow. of last night a new york times bestseller wow so that was a big <laughs> you know i wanted to have a book that lived up to the legacy of ipod and iphone and nest and uh i think might be able to say not definitively yet but i think we're on the right route to uh, having something that um 
is something as important, at least to me and the people who read it. Mm. Well, anyone listening and watching, you can also do your bit. (laughs) (laughs) So it's called Build. Build, an unorthodox guide to making things worth making. Great. So should we do the quick fire? Let's do the quick fire. So maybe 30 seconds-ish max per answer? I'll try. Well, you can do what you want, but you're the one that that has to catch the train. We'll see. (laughs) What's the best invention or product ever made that you weren't involved in? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I'll have to say, for me was the Sony Walkman, right? I was a kid, I was like this all the time. I had to have a Sony Walkman, whether that was the blue one, that was the the radio or the cassette one. I had to have, you know, the orange headphones. I had to have them because I have always been a music lover and that was like, you know, was my world. So, uh, and you know, and, and it led me on the journey that I went down. So uh, yeah, I think it was the Walkman. What's the worst product that you think's ever been made? Worst product? Yeah. Oh, God. As a problem solver here. The worst product? A nuclear bomb? Mm. You know, creators don't just create gadgets. They can create other things, mm. right? Um, and so, yeah, I think a, a nuclear bomb is pretty, pretty much up there for, mm. for things that can be existentially bad. Mm. Mm. What would you say to Steve Jobs if he were still alive and he were here? Thank you. Thank you. Who most inspires you and why? Inspires me? Mm. Oh, I'm around so many people that inspire me every day, and that's what's so great. So I have, you know, all these entrepreneurs that I get to work with and meet. Some some we don't work with and some we work with, but I get to be at the forefront every day, five, 10, 15 year technologies into the future and see through their eyes. It's so inspirational, you know, and, and to know that like the climate crisis solutions, we have to the technology. Do we have the will to deploy them? But the technology's there, the teams are there. We don't have all the answers, but we have a lot of them that can take us a long way. That's what's so great is to be around those people and be inspired by them and be able to help them. Could you maybe pick out a couple of mentors from your book, Build? Sure. Uh, well, I, gra- I mentioned my grandfather. My grandfather taught me tools and, and, and building things and said, you know, humans built this. Humans can repair it. <laughs> humans can make it better. Humans can make new things. And guess what? You're a human. <laughs> so go at it. Right. It's not like we talked about, you know, these people in, you know, on mountaintops to make this stuff. So he was one. And, and obviously I had my parents. Um, but there were also a person like Phil Goldman. Phil Goldman was the first person in Silicon Valley to take me under his wing. He unfortunately died um, in his 30s. Um, and he just became an instant friend. And he taught me all kinds of stuff about engineering and taught me all kinds of things about how to manage and working with people and how to see the world. And so he was a mentor. Um, there's obviously Steve. Bill Campbell's another big one. Bill Campbell was a mentor for Steve. He was also a mentor for Larry and Sergey at Google, Eric Schmidt, other people. So Bill Campbell was a, he, he wouldn't call himself a, he was a coach. He was a professional coach or a collegiate coach, but uh, everyone called him the coach. Um, and he was, didn't know anything about technology, but he knew everything about human nature. And he would counsel all these people in the tech world, but just about human nature. And that was 
incredibly rewarding. And to be able to have him who touched so many of the big people uh, who made the industry and the world change, um, it was really special to have, to have Bill in my camp. What's the best advice you ever remember receiving? Ever receiving? Say no a lot. So when you say yes, it really is meaningful. What's the worst advice you ever remember receiving? Oh, managers, you don't need managers. General magic. We were told, ah, oh, we don't need managers. We can get this all done ourselves. We don't need directors and, and you know, a chain of command. That's absolutely wrong. <laughs> now, this show is called Disruptors. What does the word disruptive mean to you? Disruptive is anything that challenges the status quo in a way that's doing it for the right reasons. You can have negative disruption. I'm talking about positive disruption, something that brings humanity forward. And that usually starts with a new way of doing something, whether that's through technology or a new way of looking at the world and bringing that model to bear and to, to be implemented. It's something that is so different than the status quo that the incumbents will laugh first, then they get angry, and in many cases they'll sue, and they'll do all kinds of nefarious things because they can feel you're unseating them. And they are not gonna have that fat, dumb, happy position anymore. That's a disruptor to me, both from a product or a company or a person perspective. So two more things to finish. Sure. The first thing is, I just feel like we have to talk about your watch. <laughs> this watch or, yeah, or watches in general? Yes. Yeah, because I didn't know this was gonna happen. But you're wearing, well, do you just want to talk about the watch you're wearing? Because I recognized it immediately. Yeah, this is a, a Ressence Type 3 um, watch. Um, comes out of Belgium. Belgium. Uh, uh, Benoit Mietens, uh, he is the CEO. Uh, and he is, when I first saw his first design for the Type 3, I was instantly, utterly impressed because I had been working on similar technology for touchscreens at General Magic in the 90s. And when I read the description, I saw the product and go, that guy is a genius. And we became fast friends. And, and then ultimately, um, uh, you know, uh, he asked me to help him design the Type 2 with him. Wow. So it was great. And that's, is that an oil? Yeah. So nice. there's two halves to it. So yeah. on one half, um, um, the top half is the dials. Right. Yeah. It, it shows better, at, uh, you know, on with the black face. But I love the white face so much. But so on the, it's these are just dials, and behind the dials are magnets, and then on this side is a full, you know, a uh, automatic watch, um, mechanical watch movement, and it connects to the front with the magnets. So there's magnets on this side, magnets on that side, and as you rotate, the dials that are are suspended in fluid. Um, move, right? So we, they move like this, like mm. that. And so there's no crown. So everything's done with just this one interface. You can set the watch, you know, um, you know obviously uh, wind the watch, these kinds of things. And uh, the reason for the oil in the dial is because if you look at most watches, like yours you have, you get a parallax effect. And parallax is where the sapphire crystal, um, the top of the watch, and where the dials are, there's an air gap usually. Mm. And that air gap creates all kinds of parallax effects with the visual nature of the, uh, of the, uh, of the dial. And so when you fill that gap between the, the front face 
and the dials with oil at this right refractive index, you can get that the, the printing on the dials to literally project all the way up to the front of the glass. And you get this kind of floating effect. And it's just magical. Mm. And um, it, it becomes much more, um, not just interesting to look at, but actually more legible to read. Mm. And so when I saw what he was doing, because that's what I was trying to do with touchscreens. I was taking touchscreens, uh, a display, a touchscreen, and then there'd be an air gap between it and filling it up with oil mm. so that you have, when you pressed on something, you press directly onto the thing as opposed to a parallax image. Mm. And so when I saw that, I was like, <laughs> and then we took it from there. So. And are you passionate about watches because you're passionate about all design or is there something about watches? To me, watches are, are the epitome of manufacturing, mechanical manufacturing processes. Um, I, we studied a lot of watch, um, watch features and how they were made um, at Apple to see how we might be able to do some of the finishes, some of the touches on the iPhone, the iPod, and other products because um, the way that these are crafted and created, um, it, they use new techniques that, they use techniques that are not usually used in, in, in mass manufacturing. And so, so to try to take those techniques and scale them up for mass manufacturing, just like in your Mac, MacBook Pro, right, out of all aluminum there, those are special processes and learning from them, uh, those, this industry that's so been working on things for 200 plus years and continuing to always innovate, which mm. is really astonishing to me, right? Mm. When I look at this, I think about, well, what is the iPhone going to look like in, you know, 100 years, mm. right? And how much more innovation can still happen? People are like, oh, there's no innovation in iPhone. Really? You know, it might be small, small, small steps, but guess what? We're still moving forward. Mm. Same thing happens in watches over all these years. So mm. it's really fascinating to see. So I love the artistry, the engineering, the design um, that continues, uh, and the human spirit behind this stuff that's lasted for centuries. Mm. That's why watches. <laughs> and I can collect them. They're easier than collecting cars. Yes, they are. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then finally, what are you working on right now and what's the future hold for you? Well, Future Shape is my, my, main, um, my main direction, you know, working on all these businesses, tackling climate change or societal, um, societal uh, advancement or health, uh, individual health advancement. Those are the things that really take up all of my time. I do dabble in the background you know, working on different products in my own or, or with collaborating with someone on those. Um, but nothing to announce besides build. But mm. let's put it this way. I can't be retired. Tried that. <laughs> and uh, I keep myself very busy, maybe too busy. Yeah, quick one on that. What, what, what forced you? No, why did you think you wanted to retire? Because that's a dream for a lot of people, isn't it? And you've tried it. And I, I've tried it about five times. Okay. And it I, didn't can't work, right? it. No, it I can't didn't stand work. it. I can't stand it. I wanted to. You got to try, right? You don't know what you want to do till you do a lot of things you don't want to do, mm. right? People like they go to school and they go, I'm going to be a lawyer because everyone said that's the best thing. That's what I should do. And I took these tests and said lawyer. So they go and they go for four, six years, eight years, and they go to learn to be a lawyer. And then they go and they learn, do it 40 hours or 60 hours or 80 hours a week and they hate it. 
So they just wasted maybe eight years, 10 years of their life doing something. You got to start really early on and do things. And, and, and even if you want just go work in a law office, you know, make the coffee or whatever it is and learn about what the business is and what you're going to do day to day to see if you're going to like it and try it before you buy it. Right. And you spend 10 years, not enough people try enough different things. And so for me, I wanted to try to be retired, right? Didn't work. So now I know that will never work. So not, so people will be like, well, why don't you just retire? And you're like, well, I just need to work. No, I tried it. Mm. And I have a, a, a test didn't work. So now I know why it is, what it is I do each day and why I do it. And mm. I can't be, I can't be retired. Mm. So the book is called Build. Um, do you, are you active on any social media where we can follow you as well? Uh, on LinkedIn, on Twitter, somewhat on Instagram and TikTok. And the and, username? Hmm? Your handle? Oh yeah, it's username? all T Fidel. T-F-A-D-E-L-L. Should be all of them, yes. T-F-A-D-E-L-L. Yes. On all the channels. On all the channels. I'm really grateful that you stopped by on your way out of the country. Tony, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was a great, great, great talking with you. Thank you.